Well, actually, I want to say one thing. Another thing that the doctors said to us, one doctor said, you could waste a lot of time and money on these things that will probably never do anything. And I never really forgot that. And it's true, it is time consuming and many therapies are actually quite expensive and it's unfortunate. But you also don't want, what you were saying had me thinking, you really also, it's a delicate balance there too. You don't want to squash someone who is learning how to be an advocate. And they're going to have to be an advocate for this little child for the rest of their life. Who else is going to do it? Not the doctor. Don't squash that. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. So they have to be careful, I think, in what they say, because these are moments that I may forget, you know, what percentage of uh, brain damage he had and to what matter and um, what strain of virus. But I will never forget certain things that they told me and they impacted um, the way that I wound up being. Hi everyone, I am Nicolette Richet, your host of the Eat Real to Heal podcast. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to our show so that you can get weekly updates on our podcast and all the incredible interviews that we have with such remarkable people, everybody from scientists and researchers and medical doctors and also just really down to earth humans that have used food as medicine to heal their bodies or that just have a remarkable story of healing in general. We love to bring people with moving, powerful stories that can provide an alternative perspective or even show you an alternative path that you can follow if you've been injured, if you've been diagnosed with a chronic disease, uh, which most of them are lifestyle created. And so if you can somehow hear somebody's story from one of our guests that we have on our show that can really just outline a different way of getting the results that you want to have for your health and for your life, then definitely sign up for our show so that you can start listening today to all of our episodes that we've had previously. We've been doing this show now for a year and a half. It's been very exciting learning the ropes of podcasting and really just trying to figure out how to invite the right guests onto the show, how to interview so that we're asking the right questions that can provoke the right stories that are going to inspire you to want to take action so that you can heal your body so that you can eliminate the chronic pain, eliminate all the you know, lack of energy, all of the other symptoms that are associated with having a chronic disease or a life-threatening illness so that you can get back to being the best version of yourself so that you can go on to then share your gifts with the world. Because there's only one of you in the world, you want to live it the best possible way. You want to be robust and resilient and thriving. You want to be happy and you want to really be able to put your best side forward 
because we all know that when we do that, it's when we feel the most fulfilled. And when we're fulfilled, that's when we can be of service to the world. And then that's when collectively we can be doing our good work that really ultimately is going to make the changes when it comes to combating the climate change issues that our world is faced with, that we've created, when it comes to combating the chronic disease epidemic that is upon us now that we've created, and when it comes to really battling and tackling all of the social justice issues that are in and around us now, whether it is to do with diseases, viruses like COVID, um, really shows the social justice issues that are present all around us for the people who have access to medicine versus the people who don't have access to medicine the people who have access to the resources such as food and stress management tools that help our immune systems so that we can combat COVID and be resilient to COVID as opposed to being taken down by COVID. It helps with other social justice issues when we are at our ultimate best that we can stand up and we can really advocate for those people who can't speak for themselves um, or who just tired from always fighting for themselves. And really what I'm talking about there are the um, social justice issues like racism, feminism, inequalities that really affect anybody who has considered less than um, when really we are all beautiful beings on this earth and we all need to regard each other in the best possible light and help people rise up out of oppression, repression, suppression, rise up and to a place where they should be just because they are a human on the planet or even a tree on the planet or an animal on the planet or even a rock. We all deserve the same level of respect because we all have a purpose here on the planet. And some of us are still striving to find that purpose. I feel like I have. My purpose is to educate, teach, empower, and help people overcome their chronic diseases using food as medicine, overcome their limitations through all the other uh, techniques that I have learned in my life. And it is my purpose to share that with you and with your loved ones. There is nothing on the planet that gives me greater joy than that. Unless maybe it's just truly hanging with my kids and my husband and my family or being out in nature or, you know, truly smelling the most incredible flower. I mean, I get really equal joy from doing those things, but there's something special about when you can be of service to somebody else and help somebody rise up out of their pain, their discomfort, their oppression, and be the best version of themselves. So I encourage you to really learn from these stories. You're about to hear another story today from our guest, Emily Abbott. She is the president of the Who is Carter Foundation, where she gets such great joy from running this organization. It's a role that she finds very gratifying and really because it honors the legacy of her son. Emily is a mother of five children, four who are still alive and one who's passed. You're going to learn the heart-wrenching, but also the inspiring story of her journey through having a child who suffered from a traumatic brain injury, how she dealt with that, how she moved through that, through his 
healing through his death and how she's also moved to bring um, her entire experience around and with Carter to the forefront so that she can be of service to others as well. Emily is a woman that inspires me greatly. I truly bow down to this woman uh, because I have number one, three children, not five children. Um, and I have not had to live through what Emily has had to live through. And like so many other women on the planet, parents on the planet who have uh, suffered from the loss of a child and experienced that, it is something that nobody can relate to until you've actually gone through it yourself. But Emily does such a beautiful job of sharing her story sharing what she did, sharing what helped her and what can possibly help you. So if you know of anybody who has lost a child, whether it was while the baby was still in utero or shortly after they were born, or even as a teenager or as an adult, then share this podcast because there are so many nuggets in here that could help that person who is maybe going through it right now or has gone through it or who may go through it in the future. Death is inevitable. There's not too many truths that are hard truths on the planet, but one that is, is that we are all going to die at some point in our life. It is one of the laws of nature and how we move through that transition and transition through a death or the experience leading up to the death, or after the death has occurred. If we can do that with grace, if we can do that with empathy, if empathy for the self, most importantly, but also empathy for the individuals who are going through that and experiencing that loss, then we can really help people. We can become closer. We can create community. And that's what Emily is doing through the Who is Carter Foundation, as well as the Brain possible. That's another one of Emily's companies uh, that she and her husband, Matt, started and that Emily runs now. So I really hope you enjoy this show. It is definitely a show that is very warm and dear to my heart um, because it is something that, you know, really touches home because we, a lot of us have children. You might not have children. You might have somebody else in your life that you love just as much as you would love your own child. And, you know, to hear Emily's story and how she maneuvered through, um, through that. And it is still maneuvering through that um, with such grace and dignity at every step of the way, even when she was at her lowest. Um, it's incredible how she speaks of that. So I encourage you to listen to the show from beginning to end and share it with others and let me know what you think as well. Write to us. We'd love to know how to improve the show. We'd love to know of other people you'd love to have here on our show. We're happy to invite them. If they have a beautiful story of healing, then they are the guest for us. But before we dive into the show with Emily Abbott, let me just remind you of a few things. We have our Eat Real to Heal online program. It's a five-week program that teaches you 
the six principles of reversing chronic disease. So if you're listening to this podcast right now, go to our website at nicoletterichet.com, click on work with me and scroll down so that you can click on the button and get our program, which is normally $600, but we are offering it now for $97 because we want everybody to have access to this program. If $97 feels like too much for you, then please write to us and tell us your story of why you'd like to have a scholarship and we will respond to you and even offer you a bigger discount. But if you can afford the $97, we encourage you to pay for that because all of the proceeds from this course are going towards supporting our 22 million strong campaign. And our 22 million strong campaign is all about helping 22 million people reverse their chronic degenerative diseases by using food as medicine. And we're going to do this by 2030. And to really kick it off the 22 million campaign, I'm going to be running from the West coast of Canada all the way to the East coast of Canada. That's 7,000 kilometers or about 4,500 miles. And I'll be running and biking across Canada and stopping in communities to work with and meet with indigenous communities, youth, and physicians so that we can really spread the message that food is medicine. And within the work that we're doing, a lot of it is about remembering that food is member is medicine. And what I mean by remembering, it's twofold. It's actually literally remembering that humans on the planet have lived on traditional foods for most of the human existence. It's only in the last hundred years that we've consumed genetically modified, like truly genetically modified, non-organic, pesticide-laden, toxic food that is grown in nutrient-deficient soil. So therefore, we're not getting the nutrients that we need. There's another aspect of remembering, and that comes from the indigenous story work um, that is a way of doing research, a way of forming relationships. And what I mean by remembering, it's also about putting the story back together. It's also about bringing members together. So remembering. And when we bring humans together then that's when we start to create community. And when we create community, that's when we really truly can accomplish a lot. You know, as Margaret Mead said, um, a small group of very committed people are what really, it's really what makes the world change and go round. And so we need to bring together small groups of very committed people. So we're, we are remembering as well as remembering. So our 22 million campaign is about that. Please get behind our campaign. If you want to sponsor any aspect of the ride, everything from healthy sunscreen for me, to a bike, to clothing, to food, to offering up your backyard so that I can camp in it along the way, to joining our support crew or volunteering in any capacity, please go to our website and send us an email so that you can, so that we know that you want to support our campaign in any which way possible. So sign up for our Eat Real to Heal course or any of the other courses that we have because 100% of the proceeds will be going to our 22 million campaign.
So let's dive in to this beautiful podcast with Emily Abbott. It's such a pleasure to have her on our show and we'll see you at the end. Bye for now. Hi everyone and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. It is such a pleasure to have Emily Abbott on our show today because this woman is a force to be reckoned with. So welcome Emily to our show. Hi, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. Uh, just for the listeners out there, I want you to know how I met Emily. Um, we received a call from Emily to have me come and speak at this incredible fundraiser for one of her, she, you have two companies, right? Way more, way more than two. Oh, way but- more. <laughs> Okay, we're going to dive into all the companies and then what it is you do, because um, you do have a lot going on. But the one event that I came down for was uh, for the Who is Carter Foundation. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Right? Um, and then your other company that we're going to talk about is The, the Brain Possible is mm-hmm. the other company. Um, and so I got to go down to Kansas and speak at this incredible fundraiser that you had. But let's go backwards. Like I want to go back as to why you started the organization in the first place. And for listeners out there, let me just tell you that this is a heart wrenching, but also a very heartwarming story and truly one that is, you know, fraught with so much inspiration that I'm sure you're all going to want to just go out there and do incredible work in the world. So let's go back to why you started this organization. Yeah, so um, first of all, I have uh, five kids, four living, and uh, back in 2010, uh, my second child, my firstborn son, Carter, was born, and uh, he was, oh, I'm sorry, he was born healthy, and about a week in, he caught a virus, we don't know how. Um, just some random virus. And I know that's on everyone's mind right now, what a virus can do, sometimes nothing, sometimes a lot. Um, it was called human parco, uh virus type two, I believe. I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly. But um, yeah, so his brain, little brain just started swelling and he stopped nursing, which, and he was crying. We didn't know his brain was swelling. And so we brought him in, no fever, no rash, nothing. Um, And we ended up making our way, we did the rounds to the different doctors and then made our way to the ER at a children's hospital in Kansas City. And um, they didn't know what it was either at first, so they had to do a spinal tap to find out anything. And they said, probably worst case scenario, it's meningitis. Um, and in that case, you would be here for like two weeks and um, and we'd have to stay here and give him uh, heavy antibiotics. And at the time I was thinking, oh my gosh, that's the worst thing that could happen. Like I just had a baby and now we're, going to be here in the hospital for two weeks. And he was only six days old at that time. Yeah. And um, so then we stayed there and overnight, uh, I spent the night with Carter and they started hydrating him and monitoring him. The next day he started seizing and um, in my arms and I didn't know at first what it was. 
but I actually used to have epilepsy. So I kind of started thinking it was seizures because I recognized that it might be. And at the nurses and doctors came in and at first they're like, it's probably nothing. But then he started seizing and wouldn't stop. And all of a sudden people rushed in and next thing I know he's, they're trying to get him breathing and he's on life support and they're just trying to get him stable. Um, so it was actually another few days after that, that they found out it was the virus. But what happened was this, uh, little Carter was on life support and we were told, you know, his brain was severely compromised and they said he had what they call global brain damage and, um, that there wasn't much that was not damaged and that he would probably never be able to hear, see, eat, sit up, do anything. Um, and they made it a very bleak out, sound like a very bleak outcome. And um, they also indicated to my husband and I that it was our choice we may want to think about if we want to keep them on life support. And we couldn't believe they were asking us that um, just, you know, like a couple days in. And, um, but that's because he had, yeah. did he have 60% global brain damage? Um, or was it like 40%? I can't remember. It was like 40. Um, and I know it also has to do with, and I never remember this, this statistics exactly. I know the number 40, but uh, the percentage, but I'm not sure if it was like to gray matter or white matter. Cause they also had it broken down that way. Um, so, but yeah, they called it global brain damage and, um, we didn't want to do that, but we prayed about it and, and took a day to, my family started flying in, everyone was coming in and packing black clothes because they thought, okay, well, we haven't met Emily's, Emily and Matt's child yet, but they thought there was going to be a funeral. And, um, I, I think it was the next day after he started taking breaths on his own. Um, so they were able to begin weaning him off of uh, all the machines and the oxygen. Um, so we just ran with that and got him through his hospital stay, which was for several more weeks. And um, all I can say is what we were told in the hospital when we left was we had to learn CPR, how to put it in a feeding tube, take it out, put it in. Um, and that, you know, given there was a social worker nearby, we were told even by the lactation consultant, you can never nurse. We're sorry. They did a swallow study and said, there's just no way he'll never learn. And that was hard to hear. And um, cause as a mom with a sick baby, I'm thinking that's the only thing I can give him, right? Is, is mm -hmm. me and my breast milk um, with the antibodies and everything in it. And um, so it was a dark time and we heard nothing good from almost every single person who came in the room. 
which was a lot of doctors and specialists. And every once in a while, I remember two people who did give us like a spark of hope. But for the most part, they don't give you any hope. And my husband even contacted the hospital after. It's a wonderful children's hospital. It's a research hospital. But it was part of their policy not to give you hope. <laughs> because if you have no hope, what do you have? Like, honestly, do you just like give up at that point? If like, they're, you know, like this is the part that... I mean, and I know every hospital is different. I also know that we go in and out of different, um, you know, medical philosophies as to, you know, for example, do you tell somebody their diagnosis and their prognosis, or do you just tell them the diagnosis and then let the prognosis play out in any which way? And we know stories of miracles. We know stories of healing. We know stories of spontaneous remission. And, but then I also get it. There's that philosophy that, well, we shouldn't give false hope as well to people. But I mean, without hope, what do you, like, what do you have? Like, what are you hanging well, on to? Yeah, not much. And um, the, honestly, what you're left with, with no hope at all, there, there needs to be some sort of a healthy balance and, and actually more emphasis put on empowering the family I would say, because what you are left with is living into a really, really disempowering future Mm -hmm. and full of limitations and never to be's. And um, the, even the divorce rate, for instance, I find, you know, it's very high these days. Um, But if you have a child with uh, special needs, it's like something like 80%. Um, oh yeah, because you're going to grieve at different. Uh, there's there's grief involved and grief for the life that you thought that you were going to have and that you thought your child would have, and um, everyone grieves differently. And and also, one of you might think, "Let's hang on to hope," and one of you might not. And it's a really hard place to be. Um, yeah. So, but, so I want to go back to that um, moment where the doctors, because I remember you, it was either in the book, you have an incredible, beautiful book that everybody needs to read. Um, and, and, and I can't remember if it was in the book or in your presentation or Matt's presentation at the fundraiser, but I just remember um, you saying that when the doctors had said, you know, you have the option to take them off life support. And you said, you know what, we're going to leave it up to God. And I'm not religious. And so I don't know what I would have done in that moment myself, but I do know that giving yourself up to a higher power is, you know, something that I've read that it helps so many people. And I just love that you said, well, if he's going to die, then he's going to do it on his own terms. We'll leave it mm. up to God. And so then you decided to keep him on life support where I can imagine. And I mean, I don't know, like you can never know what the right decision is. And we're going to get more into this story and we're going to know that obviously it was the right decision. Um, and, but yeah, it must've been in that moment. Like, did you ever think like, you know, and were you on and Matt on the same page with, keeping him on life support? Yeah. Um, we were. I mean, sometimes 
<laughs> well, there's we've been through many trials. We'll get to that later. But in, in the, the darkest and, and and biggest trials that we have had as a as a partnership in our with our children in our lives, um, sometimes there are moments where you become even closer because who else loves this child more than the other parent, Mm. you know, um, on earth, no one probably. Um, so you come pretty close and you you both understand each other's deep, dark, uh, fear and feelings at that time. So we, we did both agree. Um, but I was pretty much, I started becoming a little like a zombie. (laughs) Mm. I was like, couldn't hear the doctors anymore. I actually started leaving the room. This is part of the reason I I probably, it's been a long time and I've done so much healing, but I did not want to know the numbers and all the statistics and hear anything else. So I would leave the room. And once my sister came as well, she would talk to them. And I think sometimes she tells me now, she was like, I can't even tell my sister this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but Matt listened to all of it and um, he kind of started going into that. Um, now, I, to me, I, I think it, it is um, opposite of me, but he started going into this fix it mode uh, that can be typical of uh, males mm-hmm. and just looking for something to solve. Like it's not always a good thing, but he did that and started looking on the internet and trying to find anything that would help. Um, and my sister helped him as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I was just in shock. What? And you had just had a baby like six days earlier, like that's, and you had an, another child. So your other, your firstborn was with family or at the hospital. How did you manage that? Yeah. So the first night my husband watched her, um, well, I stayed in the hospital with Carter. I mean, she was with us at first to drop him off at the hospital, but then he took her home. She was two, almost three. And um, I don't know at what point some, someone took over and started taking care of Elizabeth so Matt could be with me. Yeah, so you're at the hospital, you're with Carter, you just had a baby, all of a sudden, all of this is happening, Um, which I mean, even when a child, you know, gets a normal fever, regular, just common childhood fever or cold, we all know every parent listening to this knows how stressful it can be to be like, okay, what do I do? Do I take them to the hospital now? Or do I wait the five days like they recommend? Or is the fever too high, fever too low? But meanwhile, you have a child who's on life support after being born, like healthy pregnancy, healthy birth, six days in. And for the listeners out there, I know that I've talked about this a little bit, um, but I had a similar experience with my daughter when she was 10 days old and she um, had mastitis, which is super uncommon. In 26 years, there was only one other case in all of British Columbia. And um, so her little breasts got blocked and swollen and feet and she was, well, we, it's hard to tell in a newborn if they're feverish, they're kind of just like these little hot beings. And um, we went into the doctors and the first doctor said, oh no, it's nothing. And then after we went back, they said, oh no, this is serious. So then we were in the hospital too. 
And still to this day, we don't know what caused it, whether it was a virus, but she was, you know, slammed with every antibiotic you can think of. And they were like, you know, you're so lucky that you came in, um, you know, so, and, and so I've been in a similar situation, but not a similar situation at all. You know, we were not close to life support. Um, so when this happened, okay, and then Carter stays on life support, what happened next? Because this is the part that is, you know, you know, so incredible with what happened. You're being told you have the option to take him off life support. Don't take him off life support. And then even within 24 hours, there was a massive turnaround, wasn't there? Yeah. So he, he did start taking breaths on his own and started coming around and, you know, a couple days later, he would just like peek one eye, start to open. And then it's almost like it hurt now knowing about that his brain was so swollen and his little body was just like been so damaged at that point. And he's come around a little bit and a little bit. And eventually within um, the time that we were there, I was able to start giving him a bottle um, with thickened breast milk. Um, and we would, he was able to swallow with very thickened breast milk. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they had me teaching him, but he had a feeding tube, but it was to keep him suck. So he didn't forget the sucking. Um, I don't know. It was maybe closer to when we left that they said that I could never, um, breastfeed him, but he would have seizures um, as he started to come out of it. Uh, you know, it seemed almost to me like every time I left the hospital, my sisters and mother would convince me to leave and go get a meal or a shower. And then I'd come back and they'd be like, he had a seizure. And then they had to give him, load him up with drugs. So he was like comatose again. Um, yeah. So it was rough at first. Um, and what my husband kept doing was looking for things and we would think of like, well, when his brain was swollen, we're like, what about that cold cap therapy and different things? And they'd be like, no, there's nothing you can do. They kind of shot down everything, which maybe was uh, smart, maybe not, I don't know. But um, eventually Matt found, when we knew that we would eventually be released, he found, this place online in California uh, called the Anat Banyel Method Center. Um, it's a neuro movement. And he contacted them, watched a few of their online videos. And there was uh, this really great story about a little girl named Elizabeth who had, I think, half of a brain and did a lot of Anat Banyel Method. And eventually she went to college, she got married, danced with her father at her wedding and, you know, has a, a, a thriving life. And, and so we were just like, well, let's, let's go there and check it out. And he contacted them and they said that as soon as we were released from the hospital, they would take us um, for lessons I think we stayed there for a week or two weeks of um, lessons every day with a knot. Um, yeah. And so we did not want to take him on a plane. We drove out there because we were just nervous 
we drove from Kansas City to San Francisco Bay Area um, because we were, didn't want to risk any pressure on the plane with everything that his little brain and body had just been through. So um, we went out there and that's the next part of the story. And, you know, and this part of the story is it's, I love this part of the story because of what it means for so many other people in the world and what you've been able to create. But I just have to say something there is that, um, you know, for, again, for, if you're listening to this show, I love these. I just like to remind you of what Emily said, like, you know, you started looking at these alternative, you know, protocols that, you know, you could do like, you know, ice cap therapy and, you know, you're going to share a bunch of other things that you did as well, or just the fact that you went online and Googled. And I can tell you when my, the same daughter, when she was nine years old, she actually ended up getting meningitis. And for the people who are listening, yes, she was actually vaccinated, but she had just happened to catch a different strain of meningitis. And it's still something we're trying to understand why that happened. And, but the, you know, I went in with a lot of information. I was like, okay, what about this? And what about this? And I was reading this. And the doctor said to me, you Google too much. Yeah. And this is, I know there's a lot of parents out there who've been told that by, and, and this is not to roast any doctors out there or the medical system, because the medical system is truly a beautiful system that saves lives in very acute situations. But at the same time, there needs to be a meeting of the minds where it's okay to let parents do research because when you're in medical school, you only learn what you learn in medical school. But meanwhile, there's a whole world of other teachings out there that you don't get access to when you're in medical school. And if you're not a inquisitive person, you might not go researching these alternative therapies when in fact they can be complementary and they can help. And so yeah. don't let anybody tell you that you Google too much. And if there's something that truly resonates with you, I mean, just the fact that, you know, you took the time to research it, like don't let somebody tell you that it it's not going to be viable and it might not work because it, what if it did, what if it did work? And this mm -hmm. is what you ended up doing by going to the ABM clinic in California. So let's, let's dive into the story because you still have, so for everyone who understands Carter is now out of the hospital, but he does have global brain damage. Mm -hmm. And the doctors yeah. have said that his life is not going to be that rich basically. And he's not going to hit yeah. these milestones. Yeah, pretty much. And they said he'll probably never hear, never see, never sit up uh, or do anything, eat. Um, he'd always be on a feeding tube and he'd always be on seizure medication. Um, yeah, so we uh, went out there and well, actually, I want to say one thing. Another thing that the doctors said to us, one doctor said, you could waste a lot of time and money on these things that will probably never do anything. And uh, I never really forgot that. And it's true, it is time consuming and many therapies are actually quite expensive and it's unfortunate. Yeah. But you also don't want, what you were saying had me thinking, you really also, it's a delicate balance there too. You don't wanna squash someone who is learning how to be an advocate and they're going to have to be an advocate for this little child mm -hmm. for the rest of their life. Who else is going to do it? Not the doctor. Don't squash yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Exactly. So they have to be careful, I think, in what they say, because these are moments that I may forget, you know, what percentage of uh, brain damage he had and to what matter and um, what strain of virus, but I will never forget certain things that they told me and they impacted um, the way that I wound up being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And did you have anybody on your team uh, that was positive, that was like, let's try these things? Like, did you, or were you just kind of on your own at this moment now? They just say, okay, you can go home with this child who, you know, has global brain damage and is going to be on seizure, seizure meds and here's the numbers to call. But was anybody advocating for you, like as the mom? No, no. Um what a social worker at the hospital did, did in my, the way it occurred to me was the social worker is supposed to be advocating for us and they do in a way, in their way, uh, but it was pulling me aside when something bad was happening, traumatic, that they were there to like be a person next to me and mm. comfort me or call someone if I needed that, um, get in touch with my husband, um, give me some information about how I'm going to get state paid for services when I leave the hospital, you know, things like that, but not um, in my uh, situation, the social workers at the hospital was probably the closest thing to an advocate, but not, not the kind that you and I are thinking of. I think. Yeah. No. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, there is, not going to be too many knights or queens no. in shining armor. Like you have to step into that role and be that person for your yeah. child. Yeah. hundred percent or for your partner even. So then, yeah. so then you go to the ABM center and mm -hmm. you start right. working there and you bring little Carter in and he's what, how many, he's like two weeks, three weeks old now. He was in the hospital for about three weeks. So he's maybe let's say a month old okay. um, when we drove out there. And all we knew was, first of all, it was very expensive and it was, um, we're in the real estate business. It was not a good time for us in, um, you know, my husband had to work a lot. So it was not, you know, there was the crash, the real estate crash in 2008, which was still uh, going on 2010 we're at now. And we went out there and found they never said anything. Um, and not Danielle herself saw us. Um, she agreed before we went out there. Um, and uh, Neil Sharp and Sylvia Shoredike, they all saw us. And they asked to see the MRI. And Neil is a doctor. And, and they looked at it. And um, to, they wanted to hear everything, the whole story, all of it. But then they just take that and they weren't going to make it mean anything. And that was how it occurred to us. And they never told us once what wouldn't happen for sure, or what they couldn't do for sure. What they did say is we don't know. Mm. And you never can know. Yeah. And it there, I mean, things, the brain is plastic and, and we know that. And sometimes things happen and, and, and recover, you, you gain some recovery and 
mobility or uh, functionality that you weren't going to have, but we cannot say for sure anything. We don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and that was where we wanted to stand. We were like, we're not going to stand in that place of um, nothing is ever going to happen. It's going to be a rough life for him. And this is it. And he'll never do anything. We're like, we want to surround her. We want to put blinders on to that kind of thing yeah. and stand in the place of possibility and what could happen we used to like to say all the things that carter would do because why even stand in the never to bees Mm -hmm. it wasn't doing anyone good it wasn't doing us any good and our mental health and it wasn't doing our older daughter any good to be in that place and it wasn't going to do anything for carter in his healing Um, So we weren't uh, denying any of it, but we also weren't willing to stand there. And so we thought, well, let's move out here for a while. Um, We were really lucky that we had um, Matt's brother took over our payments on our our house. He, He was just getting married, had no kids, and they said, sure, we'll move in there. It's a cool place and we'll take over the payments. And uh, Matt went to work in Florida uh, and the Carolinas for most of the time. And it was pretty much just me and uh, the two kids. And we just went out there. Like I said, it was very much blinders onto the rest of the world. And I put our head down and did it. Matt, did what he had to do to be able to afford the lessons. And I was in fight or flight mode. And right. well, you did kind what of I had to do. And yeah. you almost have to be, right? Like you have to just be constantly pumping cortisol and adrenaline. And, you know, yeah. it's just like you are, and you kind of are in a way in survival mode at that point. I mean, you, you are still just, you're a month out of having a baby. Your hormones have not come down and regulated. Like you are, you know, it is a, it is a wild time for a new mom to have to do this, especially with a two-year-old as well and a husband working yeah. in, in other states. Yeah. So what is it? Okay. So when you went to the ABM center then, so what was it like going there and how many days a week did you have to go? And um, were you involved in the therapies and what was, what was all of that? Like, if you can give us an idea of what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it looked expensive. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie about that. Um, and we were there five days a week for lessons. And um, my daughter would come with me and, you know, play quietly in the corner or something. And eventually when uh, the school year started, I got her into a preschool. Um, So that was really good. But we just did our thing and then not wanted to One thing that she requested of us at first was she said, (laughs) now this could be controversial because some people don't, you know, it's, it's a lot to, to wrap your head around, but we were like, we'll try it. She said, I don't want you doing any PT or OT with anyone else. I just want you doing this 
nothing else at the moment. Mm-hmm. And it's not that PT and OT are not good. Um, but her, to her point, if you're going to work with me, there's no way to tell what's working at first, right? If you're doing everything. Yeah. And so we, we did that. And it was, it was a good place for us, a healing place. Um, very, I felt at home there and safe and taken care of. Mm-hmm. And I also think it was only about a week in of lessons, five days a week, that he started nursing during the lessons. They videotape every single lesson. It was a little awkward at first because I'd like whip out my boob and I'm like, what are you guys going to do with these videos? And they're just like, they only use them for themselves and to document, but they videotape every lesson. Wow. I don't know how they store all that, but, and I, and I don't have the videos I'd love to have. I think they sent us some of them uh, when he, when he passed away. Uh, But about a weekend he started nursing and he learned to she Anat would be working on him while he was like I'd be holding him and he just naturally never stopped rooting and wanting to nurse because mm. that reflex was just very strong and he wanted to but the, to the the doctor's fear at the hospital was they did a swallow study that said it's going he will um aspirate and because it's the milk will come too fast for him but I just thought, gosh, can't you learn to, you know, you learn to eat sw- and solid food and, you know, you eventually learn. And why would you say that they never can? And every once in a while, this is, this is hard because you do have to listen to your doctors and you don't, if they do aspirate and you do get fluid in the lungs, mm-hmm. that can cause uh, some infection and, and they could have to go to the hospital or the doctor. And so I would just do it a little bit at a time. Every once in a while, I'd be like feeding him with his thickened milk. And then he just, I just let him try. And if he choked or coughed by, by choke, I mean, if he coughed, then I just like, I'm not going to try for a while. And then we'd try again. And I did this kind of on in secret, you know, it was just me and him. And I was a zombie <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, um, he would start to learn that bef- when it got too fast, he pulled off. Just like a bait, like my and babies just, did that. And just, and to just go and to suck slower. And he, he nursed. We, I feel like this, every time I say this, people may be like, what he died. Cause I just said that, but, um, he nursed his entire 20 months of, of life. Um, and he loved it and I loved it and it had nothing to do with why he passed away and they did look in his lungs and they were fine. So we were lucky there, but he started to do things that he was never, um, supposed to do and his little body would relax. And, you know, for anyone listening, a child that has had that kind of brain damage gets very spastic. And by spastic, I mean, it's like you have a muscle cramp and it's so tight. You put your hands in fists and you can't move it and your arms and they're just tight. Like you're making a muscle. And that must be so uncomfortable for a child to 
always be like that, which is really common. Um, they can, the, the, with children with a brain injury, they can be spastic or they can be really like, like their muscles are loose and they're floppy. Yeah. He was spastic and he would relax and start to like, you'd see his eyes open up and it's like, he could feel his body. And he knew that from just a few weeks when we first went out there to a month of life, he knew nothing but being, being continuously being brought back into that relaxed state mm. and back into like calming his nervous system and letting him feel his body and realize that he's here and he can feel and he can see a little, I mean, get in, in here, all of his senses were turned on and heightened. And um, it was a very good thing for him uh, being mm. at ABM. So there are so many things there. I mean, even in just what you said, and I love the fact that you brought up the fact that it's a note, a note, a note, a, a knot, yeah. A knot that, you know, when they, when she said, you know, we don't want you working with other PTs and OTs. And for people who don't know what a PT and OT is, it's a physical therapist and an occupational therapist. And I understand that because with the therapy I teach my clients, you know, a lot of people will come and say, well, can't I do this and this and this and this? And even though those other things are all still healthy, healing on their own, sometimes when you put it all together, there's a lot of um, aspects that can counter um, act each other. So then all of a sudden you slow down the healing as opposed yeah. to when you just focus on one therapy and do that. And then you can see if it's working or not, and then add things as you need to, or sometimes you don't even need to at all, which at the end of the day is probably a smart thing because doing so many therapies at once is exhausting. It's expensive. Um, and if you don't need to, like if you, and our bodies are incredible, they can actually often do with simplicity. It's not mm -hmm. about bringing in more and more and more. It's actually about simplifying it, focusing, letting the body get used to a little bit of breast milk at the, at the beginning, you know, until the body learns how it can take in a lot more breast milk, you know, as an analogy there yeah. um, that's fitting. So how long did you end up staying at ABM for? Right. Um, so we said at the time, we were like, let's figure out if we can make this work. And we rented an apartment for six months. We had found a place that would do uh, less than a year lease. And we thought we'd just stay there and do like six intensive month, months of uh, therapy there. But we were there and we did not want to leave. We thought <laughs> <laughs> this is not, I mean, it was hard. It was stressful. I, I, I considered selling my jewelry, my wedding ring. Um, we literally would have to, every once in a while, we'd have to ask them, we, we'd say, we will pay you, but we need an extra week or two weeks or next month. That didn't happen a lot, but I just want everyone to know that it was like, yeah, it was not easy. Um, but we signed this six month lease and then we didn't want to leave because we thought there wasn't a better option for us. And we enjoyed not just a not Benyel method and the therapist there, but we started to, you know, our daughter was at a great school. It was um, a cute little 
Italian immersion, we're not even Italian, but we found this Italian immersion school for as a preschool and they only spoke Italian or Spanish to our daughter and um, they only fed her organic vegan food and <laughs> and it was just like art all day and we loved it and we're like, this is just like a, a great place for us to be and to not be around, you know, I was I, still in this I was just had my head down and just doing our thing. And um, we, Anat hooked us up with um, a friend of hers, Dr. Lindy Woodard, uh, who you've met at the gala last year. And um, she's a dear friend of mine now and on our advisory board at the foundation. Um, but she took us in at her practice, Pediatric Alternatives and so we had a good pediatrician and we had UCSF right there for when we needed to do uh, checkups, neurology checkups and stuff like that. Um, so we just kind of wanted to stay. So then we rented a house for uh, like a moved out of the apartment and rented a house for a year um, and st stuck around, tried lots of other things as well as ABM but all in the holistic um, way. I, I say this, what I mean is that we really did feel at home and at peace and safe with everything we tried. Do no harm. Anything that was going to do no harm. Yeah, I love that philosophy, which is ultimately what doctors are supposed to do is do no harm. But what I tend to find too is that when a doctor says no, because a lot of my clients, um, you know, their oncologists write it right into their reports when my clients say, oh, I'm going to change my diet and I'm going to switch to plant-based whole food while I'm going through treatment. And the oncologist will write in there, do not change your diet. There's no relationship to like, diet and disease which scientifically is not correct. And to me, that is doing harm because you are potentially slowing down the healing, stopping the healing. I have just the other day, a client said that her oncologist said to eat Lay's potato chips. And that's not the first time I've had an oncologist yeah, to fatten her up because she was too thin. Um, you know, but she's thin because of the cancer. She's not thin because she hasn't eaten enough Lay's potato chips. And wow. so- and so that kind of stuff happens. And to me, that is doing harm when we tell people that, you know, something is going to do something or is not going to do something when they actually do not know, as opposed to potentially, you know, supporting that person and saying, hey, you know, what do you think is going to get you results? You know, let's figure out what is the best option for you in that realm, whether it's diet or um, traumatic brain injury therapy or, you know, other neuroscience technique or physical therapy and so on. Yeah. So I do love that. Do no harm in the fact that you're actually practicing it. So then when did you decide to go home? And how did you make that decision? Well, we didn't, we didn't go home. Um, oh. So we, <laughs> we stayed there. We stayed there and, and California really did become our home. We were looking at houses in uh, this little old hippie town called Fairfax. Um, we actually had one under contract at one point and um, just continued. We didn't go through with that contract, but we continued living our best life out there and hiking and teaching our older daughter to ride a bike. And um, 
getting more in touch with a slower living and um, needing less less things. Mm-hmm. Also, when you're when you're strapped for money, uh, you, you need a whole lot less. We're we're finding that as well during COVID as well. Yep, exactly. Um, and we had chickens, and I got a co- joined a co-op and all that fun stuff. And we did not intend to leave, but then uh, one day uh, when Carter was exactly 20 months old, uh, he was napping and he passed away in his sleep unexpectedly. So at that time, um, I was obviously in uh, like total shock, total shock. I mean, he was actually doing very well. He was not on oxygen. He was not on a feeding tube anymore. He was not on any medication at all, except cod liver oil and, and, um, and vitamin D and, you know, those kinds of things. And, and bone broth, you know, but. Cause he was eating food now too. Like he had pretty much like, he had accomplished all of those things that the doctor said that he would never accomplish. He'd hit all of those milestones. He and this did, was, yeah. and this and, is with a child that still ha- he still has a traumatic brain injury. It's not like the injury went yeah. away. He still had it, but then he still was able to, the brain is amazing. I mean, the brain is possible. Like, yeah. The brain possible. Yeah. <laughs> like I understand where the name of your company comes from. Um, and you had mentioned, you know, neuroplasticity. And for people out there who don't understand what neuroplasticity is, um, that the brain is plastic. It can shape and remold itself and create new pathways. And that's what we talk about when it's, you know, it being like plastic. It's not literally like dough that you're transforming, but it's the fact that it creates new neural pathways that can overcome and override damaged areas and actually go around those damaged areas and create the new pathways that are the healthy pathways. And that's Mm -hmm. what was happening to Carter. Yeah. Yeah. It is possible. A lot of things are possible. And um, he, what I will say is he had a very good quality of life um, for those 20 months. And I completely, what, well, what he did pass away, he had an autopsy and my immediate reaction, uh, knowing that, you know, I didn't live into the fear, right? I immediately went into, oh my God did he roll over and he couldn't roll himself back over because he didn't roll that well? Like, was he suffocating in a pillow? Uh, Did he have a seizure, a really terrible one? Did he choke on something? Mm -hmm. Um, I went into everything and and blame as well. And then we waited the horrible wait to have an investigation done because when a child dies, far as I know, they usually, my only experience is it was an investigation. They had to check everyone and everything that we did in our home, and they had to do an, a thorough autopsy. Um, and it was hard to wait, just like when we didn't know why he got this, that he had this virus, they questioned us then too. Did they wanted to know, did you shake him? Mm. And I'm thinking, no, I didn't shake him. Did your daughter shake him? No. So it, they told us in the end that he had a brain bleed 
in the area of the original damage, which they can tell when you open up the brain, I guess, which part was damaged and had bled before. Mm-hmm. And that it was like a little aneurysm that no one we would never have known was there. And it just bled out. And he died peacefully in his sleep. And we, I think it's a good thing we didn't know it was only going to be 20 months. I wasn't in the house at the time and I never left him, but I did go out to get a haircut and a pedicure that day um, because people were encouraging me to do stuff for myself and get out because I was starting to really break down. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was really hard. So we, my family flew out immediately. I'm a big family. Um, I'm one of four kids. My parents came out and um, my sisters came out and they came through the house before I even got there. I stayed in a hotel. I had some friends from a not Benyel method that um, kind of took me in their wing because I didn't really know anyone else out there. I knew a not Benyel method and all the people I went to school with at an ABM uh, training mm-hmm. and Carter's therapist, my daughter's teachers. That's about it. Um, and they took me to a hotel and my husband was actually in Florida, couldn't get to me and until the next day. And they took care of me while I just was grieving and in the worst way, in the worst way. And, and I, they were all there for me and even came to say goodbye to Carter. Um, then I knew that I wanted to have his funeral in New Jersey. That's where I'm from. And no one was going to question anything I wanted at this point. So uh, I left. And after my sisters cleaned out the house, they threw out all the homemade baby food that I had frozen. They got rid of every diaper. They were like, oh my gosh, she can't come home to all of this. And started packing up. And I was just like, I'm not going to stay here. Why stay here? Yeah what's here for me? I'm alone. And everything I know was just taken away my entire routine and my son and my life, you know, he's part of my life. A huge chunk of me was just gone. Um, so we flew out to New Jersey and my husband and my father stayed back to wait for Carter because that autopsy took a while. And then they flew with him. These are all horrible things that no one has to think about usually. Um, And I hope that no one ever has to uh, think about them uh, burying a child or anything like that. But I stayed at my parents' house for a while and our lease was up at the house in Novato, California. Um, So we moved out and had no home for a little while and then moved back to Kansas City uh, at my husband's encouragement, he bought a house without me ever even seeing it. He said, is it okay with you? And I was just like, whatever. <laughs> I was like, um, so the first time I saw it was when we closed on it and, um, and we moved to Kansas city. But after that, we missed Marin 
for a couple, starting about a year later, as we started to heal and um, we did a lot of leadership courses and we did a lot of landmark um, and we were away in Cancun at this course called Being a Leader and kind of crafting our life. And we kept talking about how much we just loved Marin. And so we were just like, well, why don't we live there? Like and, Marin County in- Yeah, Marin County in California. Okay, and, so hold, before we get to that, I just have to go back. Yeah, because okay, go back. We, we transitioned really quickly from Carter passing away and then having his funeral in New Jersey. And then all of a sudden you walk into this house you've never <laughs> seen, right? And so it, you know, and for, there's going to be people listening to this that have lost a child. I mean, I used to teach prenatal yoga for years and, you know, women would be pregnant and then, you know, sometimes before the due date, they'd lose the baby a week before, five months before, sometimes in the first trimester. I mean, all the way through, um, I've had students that lost their babies two weeks after they were born, um, mm -hmm. you know, two months after they were born. So this does happen to actually produce, create a child and then have them be born healthy and then have them live is actually, it is a miracle in itself just to have a healthy child and to get them through the first 10 years even is a miracle, um, which I think a lot of us take for granted that it's, it's not easy keeping humans alive. Actually, there's so many things every single day that literally are out there and it's not to say be afraid of them, but it's to say, don't take it for granted. So, but you've had to live through this. And so um, and for somebody like myself who hasn't lost a child, I mean, I can't even imagine what that was like. So you were already a zombie going through, you know, supporting Carter through his, his training. Um, what was it like, what was that like for you? Cause you still had to be a mom. Um, wow. So it was a lot, um, and I became, I'm positive I, I, that's probably where I started to really become repressed. Um, and I actually didn't talk to my husband very much. Um, I, you know, it's funny because I don't know how long, I guess I've had Facebook for a very long time now. And I, if I look back at some old messages, one time I was looking for something and found this message written by my husband to me on Facebook and it said, hi baby i just want to see how you're doing um and the kids how you and the kids are doing i know that you're busy all day long and um we never talk so i figured that i'd be able to get in touch with you here on facebook <laughs> I'm like oh wow yeah <laughs> yeah so it was not it was not easy but what i will say is Matt actually, my husband, Matt, actually encouraged me to, um, and not does this train, she, she trains other practitioners, so you can take a training. And I thought, at, he saw this flyer posted up in her waiting room um, for a not Benil method training. And I was like, no, why would I do that at first? And how, and like, like how soon after Carter passed I, away? No, before. Oh, before. Before. I was training to become a practitioner. While yeah. you're going to therapy with him every single day and living on your own yeah. in California. Okay. Yeah. So my, mo my mom flew out a lot to help me. And she actually did the training with me. 
Um, it was very supportive. Um, and I think it was good for both of us. It was wonderful for both of us, but I was resistant at first, like I normally am <laughs> to many of my husband's ideas. And he said to, why don't you try this? And you can help Carter and it'd be a good thing for you to know how to do this. You know, we thought we'd be taking care of him for the rest of his life and uh, until we died and then someone else would have to. And um, so I signed up and it was, I think they were like two weeks every eight weeks or something like that. And I might be a little bit off on that. It might be every six weeks or something, mm -hmm. but it was for two weeks all day long, um, every eight weeks, let's say. And then just, and I think there was eight segments or 10 segments, one of those. And just to complete her first training, that's just to become a, tr a practitioner for like adults, a not banal method adult. And then there's a whole nother one that you can do just to learn about children. So I was almost done with the adult one, um, having gone through that. And I will say that that was healing for me. Mm. Um, it, a not Vanille method doesn't just help people if they have a brain injury. It, it also kind of helps to essentially wake up any kind of move movement with intention helps to wake up your brain. Mm. Right. Yeah. And, um, and bring you a little bit back to life. And we all need to slow down and take time to have your electronics completely off and do something for yourself. Um, and is a very healing thing for me to do, I think. And um, so that, that probably supported me through a lot of it, but, I'm sure my poor oldest has been through a whole lot um, of mama being normal mom, fun mom, single young, you know, not single, single child, mm -hmm. uh, having a single child, a uh, young mom. I was 22 when I had Elizabeth and my oldest and um, didn't expect that Carter was going to get sick, obviously. And then all of a sudden I'm like, not really a present, you know, mom's not really here. Mm -hmm. And she was my little buddy, but she's seen me through a lot and a lot of depression. Mm -hmm. When I was at my mom's house, she used to slip notes under the door to, to, you know, you know, to me. And, uh, Well, you were, you were asking about what it's like to be a mom during all this. So I'm just like, ah. No, this is, you know, the thing is, is that everybody's going to go through, you know, their grieving and, you know, their loss, you know, of a child or of anybody, but they're going to do it in their own way. But sometimes sharing the stories of how you went through it, number one, it normalizes it for a lot of people because you know, especially women, we tend to beat ourselves up like, oh, I should be stronger. I should, you know, meditate through this. I should do yoga through this. I should, you know, I need to be cooking good food for my kid, even though you're just grieving the loss of another child. So we tend to beat ourselves up over lots of things. And I know for a lot of moms, they think they're 
worse moms than they actually are or that their kids perceive them to be. I don't know if anybody has seen that Dove commercial, but it makes me cry every single time because basically, you know, they ask the kids, what do you think about mom? And the kids are like, mom is amazing and beautiful and fun and playful. Meanwhile, they ask the moms how they feel about themselves. And the moms are like, I'm a terrible mom. I yell too much. I'm like not patient. I'm not present. And meanwhile, it's like a completely different perception. So, I mean, I just can't even understand because at the same time, like you are someone who needs to be cared for, right? When you're going through the loss of a child, you know, and often we don't have somebody you know, caring for us. And people just sometimes don't even know how to care for somebody who's lost a child. And so were there like, was, who was helping you through this and what were the things that were working for you or what was not working for you? Maybe that's something we can share with our listeners. After, after Carter passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sometimes every once in a while people ask me this question. I actually wrote a, a, a an article about some things that you can do to support someone who's lost a child Um, because there was a lot of things people did for me and there's the things that I remember Mm. Um, you know a little things that people did or sent me or gave me or said to me Um, because it's an awkward thing people don't always know how to be with that we're not always comfortable being with things that are not like us Uh, And gosh, I did. One thing that was helpful was, well, my family, they just took me, took over. And I'm so lucky that they were able to just take care of little Elizabeth. And she was just a little ball of energy, almost. She was five and, and, and they tried to make it, you know, as fun and normal as possible for her. Um, and that was really helpful. And I read, there was certain books that I read that really did actually help me. And even if Mm -hmm. I picked it up for like a chapter and then had to put it down because I couldn't do it anymore. Um, but to read other people's stories and how they got through grief, those Mm -hmm. kinds of books. Um, and I did this, uh, I believe it's, I need to look it up, but some type of psychotherapy, I think that um, they do for PTSD because I had really bad PTSD. I actually couldn't go to a grocery store. I remember for a long time I could not because every little noise I heard was like, like, like I couldn't be with the normal world because I was in shock. Yeah. Like really bad. I and got um like uh welts all down my throat and on my tongue. And I went to, I'm in New Jersey now and, and went to my um family practitioner that I went to growing up and I'm like, what is this all over? And she goes, that's from the stress. Mm. And I'm like, oh <laughs> so I was heavily medicated. <laughs> at that time. Um, and then I went to a doctor who did this, um, the the therapist who did, um, they would put like headphones on me and it was actually really helpful. And they just tell me, have me tell my story, you know, what happened, you know, when Carter died, where I was, every little thing that I, that every little detail that I remembered. 
And they would just have me say it again and again and again. And during that time, there is this like, and I, I don't know what it's called off the top of my head, but it's really helpful. Uh, it would go beep from one ear to the other. And it would just go beep, beep, back and forth in the headphones. And it was a little distracting at first, but for some odd reason, I think that helped. Um, and I know it's something they do with uh, veterans and stuff um, for PTSD. And um, and were you looking for these types of therapies for yourself? Like, were you being the advocate for yourself or was somebody no. else coming in and saying, hey, good question. You- <laughs> That's not what I'm curious about. I don't think I was. Uh, I want to say, I, I don't know exactly who recommended her. But I feel like maybe my sister asked around, my older sister, and maybe my mother, and um, they were just finding me somewhere to go to talk and to heal because we were also trying to get pregnant before Carter mm-hmm. um, passed away. So probably for about three months before Carter passed away, we had started trying to get pregnant again. And um I was actually trying to get off of all antidepressants, which I've been on since I was um, 16 or so, and bring my body back to a balanced state. Um, And so I was working on a whole bunch of things and doing amino acid therapy, trying to get my body to sleep without drugs and to Mm -hmm. be awake without drugs and... um, and by drugs, I mean, you know, Ambien um, or to help with sleep or um, Adderall to help me be awake. Mm-hmm. And um, we were in the middle of this therapy. And then that, that naturopathic doctor said, you, this is not the time to continue this. So she's like, just go back onto what you were doing. Yeah. Um, but I did need someone to support me and my sister was helping uh, with that, finding people for me to talk to. Um, when we went to Kansas City, um, the pediatrician in Kansas City recommended that we go to this um, grief support um, for Elizabeth, um, some local grief support group. And we did do that and had her evaluated, they said, really what it came down to is they were like, she's fine. They're like, (laughs) they're like, what, but you need to talk to us because whatever mama's feeling, she's going to feel. And so if you're fine, she'll be fine when you're upset. And it is true. Mm -hmm. When I would get upset and cry or have a moment, Elizabeth was even still, she's a little like this, but she's 12 now, right by my side, looking at me, looking for my emotion and trying, it's like you could see the tears willing them to come. If mom's crying, I'm going to, I'm going to cry. And, and it, so I started working on, you know, getting help for me and, Mm -hmm. and, um, that's how I supported my family. So <laughs> that's, then, 
so that's the part that, I mean, I know I've heard people say this. I probably thought it too, like, you know, how would I ever survive, you know, the loss of a child? Like I, you know, I could never survive that. I can never go through that. Like that's, but you know, people do it all the time. And at any point where you're like, I don't even want to survive this or how were you during that time? Like, you know, you were saying yes, obviously to showing up for these therapies, but was there ever a time when you're like, I just don't want to. Yeah. So gosh, there's many things. Um, there are times I, I was, no one could move me and I'm not going to lie. Um, and it actually kind of made me a little angry, but I also kind of watched it from, you know, like from afar, almost like I'm looking at all this happening, Mm -hmm. but immediately when I was alone there, people were afraid for me. They didn't, they were like, someone has to be with Emily because and I was just like later on learning, they thought I, I, I think they thought I was going to hurt myself. Mm. They thought, I mean, they really did. It was, it was, the, that was the way the beginning of everything was. Don't leave Emily alone. Mm. Um, she needs someone. And everyone else was scared for me. And did, and were you feeling that for yourself or were you just like, I just need to be here and go through this and. No. So no, I wasn't going to hurt myself, but I hadn't, I had another child to live for. Mm-hmm. I did. And, um, I knew that Carter was gone, but I didn't know what in the heck I was going to do mm. or how I would ever get over it. And there were many, many, many nights and time, sometimes during the day. Mm-hmm. And they're funny, the things that we remember clearly and then the things that I just don't remember very well. But I remember specifically staying up all night and listening to certain songs on repeat. There was, music was very therapeutic to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the beginning, especially, a lot of songs were. And just letting it out and melting and now, and it almost to me, it almost looking back on it, it it is a tragic, terrible, horrible, awful thing, and so sad. But I can see it, the beauty in it now. That I was able to love someone that much. Yeah. And I gave myself to this little guy fully. And he brought me to my knees and taught me so much. And it was hard to let him go. But yeah, there was a lot. I, I Gosh, there's other things people did for me when I was still in California before we moved out. And it took a couple trips of going back and forth. I even continued ABM training for a little while. One more segment. And uh, before I decided not to. And um, I remember one time, one night, I was like with my sisters and my, you know, this is right after he passed away and my father and my mom and they were, everyone was in the house and I just disappeared and went into his crib and I would not get out. Mm-hmm. And I remember it's like a movie, everyone around me trying to say, what do we do? We have to get her out. She can't stay there. And I was just like, get away from me. I'm not moving. 
it, things like that, <laughs> random things like that. I had a friend who came and did cranial sacral and uh, her husband is, uh, he, he teaches acupuncture. And so he's a, like a master and there was his needles all over me. And she did cranial sacral and a little ABM on me. And I was just like, that helped. Oh gosh, that made my body like feel peace. Mm. Like, like heavy, like I could sleep. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, a lot of, a lot. <laughs> I bet. And it's, you know, and the I, thing that I love is that you just kept you know, you, you were doing what you had to do, like staying in the crib for as long as you needed to stay in the crib, you know, and, and obviously you're not going to live in there for the rest of your life. You know, one day you are going to get out, but there, you know, it sounds like there needs to be a trust process on the family that's there watching, you know, the grieving mother, grieving father go through all of this. And also there's that, there's that boundary, that balance, that place where it's like, okay, well, how do we let them grieve fully, you know, like staying up all night, listening to songs and weeping, weeping, weeping and have that knowing that that's a safe part of healing, you know, and it's going to look different for everybody, but for sure on the person who's watching it, I'm sure that everybody's like, we don't know, is this okay? Is this not okay? And, um, but the fact that you said yes to so many of these things, like the acupuncture and, um, you know, like going to get the, the sound in the headphone, you know, <laughs> therapy as well, post-traumatic therapy. I mean, it's so important for people to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also want to say, um, because I know that I, I was sharing that, you know, it is hard for people to be with something that they don't understand um, fully and maybe can't comprehend, but, and you talked about um, knowing other people from your prenatal classes um, who have experienced loss of, you know, a child. But one of the things I learned about grief is quite honestly, I get that grief is grief is grief and it's still the same. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not gonna lie, I sometimes maybe Part, very a very small part of me might be like if someone's like obsessed about their dog that they lost <laughs> might be like you know but it's still the same thing and I do know that yeah. and I do know that and I learned that I read books about it and I understand that the loss and we talk about that in who is Carter the loss of a job the loss of a child the loss of um, your health when you have cancer. You know, there's all different kinds of loss mm -hmm. and, and it is still all grief. Yeah. Um, and so I just wanted to say that, yeah. No, and it's, um, I listen a lot to the Rich Roll podcast, which yeah. is such a good podcast and um he has, um, oh my gosh, I think it's Guru Singh who comes on to his podcast a lot. Um, and 
he just did a whole podcast on grief because his daughter lost their baby. Um, I can't remember if it was a week or two before the baby was supposed to be born or afterwards, but he did such a beautiful segment on grief and grieving and what it really means. It's just beautiful for anybody to listen to that one because instead of, you know, seeing grief as, you know, something that you just need to get through and get over. It's, it's a part of the healing. It's part of the, who you are and it's always going to be there um, and it's going to change forms and it's going to be different, but there's so many good tips in that podcast. So we're going to put that in the show notes for people to listen to. And, and if you have any good books as well, it would be really good. We can list that in there, like anything that helped you through, through that or, and that's still helping. Cause I'm sure that, you know, as birthdays come around and, you know, the years pass and you meet other families who are going through their own stories and their own experiences. I'm sure that there's, you know, there's going to be different things that help you along the way. Yeah. The part that um, I really wanted to really share with people as well is what you did afterwards. Cause you did say that he was such a blessing and a gift and everything that you learned and how are you using that now? because you've created these incredible organizations and you're doing so much good work that has now been brought into Europe. You had, you were talking about a family that started a center there. Um, there's so much goodness and there's thousands of people that have been impacted by the work that you've done, which is, is the most incredible thing really. Yeah. Um, so when Carter passed away, um, at his funeral, at his memorial service, my husband um, stood up, him and, and my father both said that we would start a foundation one day. And uh, I was still in shock for a very long time and it took me a long time. I went through infertility and had three more children after this, but it was just a declaration. And I was just like, okay. I'm not worrying about that. Matt can worry about that. <laughs> but, but if he says so, we can do that. Or he can do that. But, uh, <laughs> but um, years later, after I had our fifth child in 2017, Matt comes and he says, I'm going to write a book about Carter. And I want to know if that's okay with you. And I was like, do I have to do anything? And he goes, no. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I was like, you do whatever you want to do. So then he did this, wrote a book called Who is Carter? It's um, not terribly long. You can read it in a couple of hours um, and it goes through the whole story and um, how, you know, the mindset that we were in and how we, got through and in the life that Carter had and the beauty. Mm -hmm. And um, then the next step was, all right, well, when this book comes out, we need to start a foundation. And so we, we, Matt wanted to publish the book, but then after that, he was like, well, I think that it'd be natural that all proceeds from the book go to a foundation. So then we started going into how to start a foundation and got all that, those boxes checked and got the 501c3 and uh, named it who, the Who is Carter Foundation, um, which came from 
the name came from years ago after Carter passed away, I had done some work at Landmark. I went back and did a few courses that really, really pushed me into healing. Um, but only when someone is ready can they do that. But I was ready. And I met someone there and, and we started talking about a dream for a website. And at the time I wanted to start this website where someone could go and learn about all these different treatment options that their doctor may not have likely didn't tell them about and a place where someone can be empowered to be their child's advocate, empowered to live a slower life, a cleaner life, uh, care, learn about um, you know, EMFs, dirty electricity, learn about uh, living, you know, the toxins in our home and maybe what things we might should think about um, when raising a family that just aren't in the mainstream mm -hmm. media news and also a safe place that made people feel like they can do this and it doesn't have to be you know a death sentence and they can learn and then find practitioners to support their family so we talked about carter and I think he, I think it was like from who is John Galt. <laughs> and so then he's like, well, I could see this on buses, like who is Carter? So that just kind of stuck and we named mm -hmm. it that. Um, and then we built the website, who is Carter? Decided first step was to have a gala and raise money. Always still knew that my first initiative, I started getting involved now, eventually, you know, yep. I had to be involved. It's sort of Matt does like he does and start something and then I get pushed out the door <laughs> and, and so I started taking over and um, I am president of the foundation and so then I was like well I, I have ownership to it mm -hmm. and um, I, I have a say in how it's going to look and I wanted to I was wanted to have a say in what was going to happen and be done with this money and so we started raising money by way of um, doing an annual gala. And the idea was to build a website called, Matt came up with a new name. It was originally Resource ND, kind of like WebMD, but I thought mm. it would be resources and like naturopathic doctor. But then um, he just thought, he came up with the brain possible and it sounded catchy. Mm -hmm. So... I started planning out and mapping out this website where people uh, like all the, of our dreams and hopes and wishes that we would have had could be on one site where people could learn about hyperbaric oxygen chambers and why you might want to know about that and yeah. quantum lasers and uh, Muscatova and uh, acupuncture and the power of meditation for, for caregivers and, and kids and um, food is medicine and um, things that they can do at home as well. And an Benyel method and Feldenkrais mm -hmm. method, all these different things. And um, there's over 50, maybe we're approaching 60 treatments right now on our site because there's a lot, wow. not that everyone should do all of them by any means, less is more. 
Yeah. But but it's the, but that's the thing. I and mean, you even mentioned things that I don't know about. And I'm like, oh, I got to get back onto your website and check these out because that's, you know, we teach our clients that, that they need to put together a whole health team. So they yeah. basically, they draw a circle on a piece of paper. They put, you know, rays of sunshine coming out of it, which are the lines where they're going to write down the treatment that could be possible for them in that particular situation. So if you're going through cancer, of course, you're going to have an oncologist on their whole health team, but you might also have, for example, Feldenkrais method. You might have a chiropractor. You might have mm-hmm. a nutritionist. You might have somebody who understands about toxicity and, you know, whatever it is, but, you know, maybe two years later, 10 years later, you know, you are going through something else. You've pulled out your back, you know, what you're going to have a chiropractor for sure, but you might also have a yoga therapist. Like there's, you know, you need 50, 60 different treatments on there because you're going to use them at different times in your life for different things. Right. Yeah. So, but most people I talk to, they don't even, they're like, oh, I would never go to a chiropractor because they have this idea in their head of what a chiropractor is. Or I can't get, you know, acupuncture. Like, why would you put needles inside of me? Like just people don't understand that, that there's this whole world out there waiting to be discovered that can bring them healing and health. And instead yeah. they say, oh no, my, my GP has the answer. Yeah. He does have some answers, but it's only one tiny part of the whole big picture. And it's a limited view- viewpoint. Everyone has sure. a view a viewpoint. Yeah, exactly. So I love what you did. So you so you had the first gala and you don't go tiny, like you go big when you do things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we do. Um we were lucky because we have um we currently have three event spaces is in Kansas City. So we did them in, um, and when I say event space, they're mainly weddings, but corporate events. Um, Actually, the place that we're in, the the Kansas City Chiefs and the Kansas City Royals do their events at our space. Um, And it's it's a big warehouse type building in the Crossroads District. It's kind of like an artsy district in Kansas City. And so we thought, well, let's naturally, that's Space is free to us and let's go there and uh, we have the resources and the connections uh, a lot of business relationships and friends and family um, to come to Kansas City and we just started inviting people and getting sponsorships and uh, putting on our first fundraiser um, and that's been our main source of income. We also did get one grant, um, but it was not by way of writing a grant proposal. And that really pushed us out the door. And without those galas and all of the support and our, our private donor, we would not have been able to do all that we're doing right now, which is a lot. <laughs> it is a, so much stuff you have going on. It's beautiful. I mean, you have... So before we, well, let's just dive in. You have a podcast now, which you've launched so people can learn, Mm -hmm. you know, healing stories and learn about all the different things that you can do. Um, And is it for, that's for the brain possible, right? That's a brain possible podcast. It's the name of the podcast. It's called the brain possible and you can find it anywhere uh, that you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and all the other smaller channels. And, uh, we talked to, I interview, I am not a healthcare professional, uh, but I interview people who are, um, like Beth Lambert, uh, 
from documenting the Documenting Hope Project and Epidemic Answers. She talked about total load on one episode. I've talked, we've talked to Dr. Michelle Perro about GMOs and Dr. Lindy has talked to me about ear infections, little things like that, how to take care of ear infections in your kiddos uh, naturally and why are they so common and um, the effects of antibiotics. Um, we have, this week I am interviewing the co-founder of Billy's uh, Footwear, which is uh, sold in Nordstrom and like all the big Amazon, Macy's, big stores. And there are these really cool like skater looking shoes that have like a zipper all the way around and they're really popular around. You might not know it because they're sold in like Nordstrom for just anyone because they're cool looking, but they're really popular for kids who have a special needs because they're easy. They could get their whole foot in the shoe without any tying because the zipper goes all the way around the whole thing. So um, smart. Oh my yeah. gosh. And this guy's awesome. He um, had an accident when he was in college. And so he uh, is quadriplegia and uh, came up with this uh, awesome footwear solution with his business partner. So just kind of all different, you know, topics. Um, I also have talked to psychotherapists about, you know, uh, caregiver wellness and taking care of ourselves and, you know, all different things. That's amazing. Mamas and Okay. So we're going to put the link for the podcast down there so everybody can start subscribing to this incredible podcast and start listening and learning because I think that, I mean, so beneficial to so many people because there's not a lot of resources when you have a child that is ill or a child that has, is able-bodied or, uh, or disabled. Do we say disabled anymore? Do we say disabled? No. Um, Differently abled is different. what people like to say now. Yes. I know. Differently <laughs> abled. Okay. Thank you for correcting me on that. Um, you know, and so, you know, and there's not a lot when it comes to, you know, anybody who has mental health issues, you know, mm -hmm. the resources are not great. Just like you said, that social worker who could say like, oh, can we call somebody for you? As opposed to, hey, there's 50 different resources here. Like, did you know about these shoes for your child that zip all the way around? Like to have <laughs> a resource like that is incredible. So please everyone subscribe to that podcast. Um, you also have a book that you, that's kind Coming out soon. Yes, uh, we do have a new book coming out um, in August, August 11th, written by Jessica Bird. She is our editorial chair, and um, she, in collaboration with the Brain Possible and the Hillis Carter Foundation, um, interviewed parents of differently abled, a wide range, differently abled kids. So anyone who maybe had a concussion uh, like your daughter to having cerebral palsy or dyslexia, um, epilepsy, all different things. And she tells their stories. So it's, um, I can't remember how many stories are in it, maybe 16. And um, 
Yeah, it's different than who is Carter. It does not tell our story again, but it, it shares other people's journeys because that was one of the things that I found the most uh, helpful. And I hear that from other parents, uh, differently able kids, is to find someone out there who has walked this before you. And even if they're just a year ahead of you, Mm-hmm. That can be really helpful. Like, what do I buy? What do I do? How did you feel? Oh my gosh, you felt the same way I did. How did you get through that? Oh, you did get through it? That's good. So I'm going to survive. <laughs> exactly. But it is, it's so true. And I think in, you know, our Western culture, very Eurocentric Western culture, you know, that has separated church from state, that has separated the art from the science, that separated, um, you know, had put all these separations in and said, well, no, the only way of knowing is through science. So we're going to do a study and figure out how grieving mothers get through the loss of a child. And this is the way that they do it. It's these five things that we observed. Meanwhile, there's a whole plethora of other things, but Mm -hmm. most people aren't reading those studies. And what helps people is stories. And this is what I love about um, Indigenous story work is that you know, oral tradition has been around, oral history has been around for thousands of years. That's how we've come to know all the things that we come to know. It's through storytelling. It's why people love books and blogs and podcasts. And it's so important for people to share their story. And one of the things I often ask my client, like not my clients, but when I have a client who has an illness, I'll find somebody else who has the same illness. So if it's a woman with a particular type of cancer, I'll find another woman, same age with that particular kind of cancer, who's walked the steps that this person's yeah. going to follow. And I get them to talk to each other and just say, talk to each other because I haven't walked that. So, you know, I can tell you what you need to do, but you want to hear it from the person who's actually done it. And what happens is number one, these people form a relationship mm-hmm. and anytime there's a question, they can be like, how were you feeling? How did you make that decision? You know, tell me. And it's, it amplifies their healing process so much more by having exactly what you said, somebody who's walked those yeah. shoes and yeah. walked those miles ahead of you. So it is a powerful, powerful thing um, to share stories. And then sometimes I meet people who I'm like, oh, do you want to share your story? And they're like, oh no, that's behind me. I never want to ever visit that again. Yeah. I never want to talk. Meanwhile, you talked about how one of your therapies that you did was telling the story over and over mm-hmm. and over again as part of the healing, which is a healing process in itself mm-hmm. to tell the story, but also to listen to the story. It is. Yeah, it is. That's, that's yeah. huge. And that is common. What you said, sometimes people don't want to go there. I, I had some people who emerged when I started telling my story, who would say like, I lost a child and I've never talked about it since, but you just opened that up at me. Cause it's sometimes people just, they're just, they just can't they become like a fist and they're like, I'm not going to let it go. And I'm going to keep it all in. Yeah. We have one of our staff had lost her brother when she was 17. And I mean, she was in her late thirties when she was working for us. And she told me that her brother had passed away. And when she told me, she says, that's the first time I've really ever talked about it because their family wouldn't allow them to talk about it. It was like when he died, that was it. And it's so important for, and I get it. You don't want to visit that pain, but at the same time, by visiting that pain, by sitting in it, by going through the grief, by, you know, really letting it take over your body, even if it means you're having to lay in the crib and, you know, stay up all night listening to music crying, it, it's, it's part of the healing process, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, and I, I get that too. Um, 
that actually years ago, it was very uncommon to talk about, um, you know, the loss of a child. It, it wasn't like my father had lost a um, brother before he was born. And I remember even asking about him and no one really talked about him. No one really knew anything about what happened, like why he died exactly or, yeah. and, it, and I think, and there's certainly no pictures. Um, it hurts. It mm-hmm. does hurt to put pictures of Carter all over the place and to hear my kids talk about him and, you know, little kids, sometimes they just like make things up and say stuff. And sometimes they say stuff that maybe might hurt a little bit because I'm like, why would you say that? But they have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it's very therapeutic to get it out and give yourself permission to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really does help. No, it, I, I agree with that. And I know it's helped me in so many ways. And it's why I love storytelling. There's one more story that I'd love for you to share because yeah. it's, I love that on the Who is Carter book that there's butterflies. And you had mentioned that um, it was at Carter's memorial Mm-hmm. You had butterflies and you released them and how they all came and landed on your daughter. Yeah. And I saw right away, I saw your earrings. <laughs> oh, am I wearing, oh, I'm wearing my butterfly. Yeah. Oh, I must've subconsciously, yeah. I just changed that. I never changed my yeah. earrings. So I must've subconsciously done that because it's true. I have little um, dragonfly. Oh, you didn't, I thought maybe you did it intentionally. <laughs> no, I didn't know. I love these earrings. And when I was looking at my wall and being like, which earrings am I going to wear? They just, they felt like the good ones to wear, but I wasn't even putting two and two together. <laughs> but I love how, and so the talk that I gave um, at the, um, at the, at the gala was called the butterfly effect and how it's really important like that when you take one action one step how that can have really big changes for people down the road that people you might not even ever meet but then it affects them and one of the stories um, that you presented at the gala which really moved me was a family that was at the um, ABM clinic center who they're from Switzerland Denmark Denmark. So if you yeah. could just share that story and we will wrap up with that because it is just, it really shows the power of how one person's experience um, can really help shift things in the world and how it can affect so many other people, people that you've not even met, but are hmm. being affected by, by everything that's been created and happened, you know, through your experience at ABM and, and through Carter's experience on the planet. Yeah. Um, so, uh, some of our best friends, uh, Johannes and Sina, they have a little girl named Anna and she, we met them at, um, in the waiting room at a knots, uh, headquarters in San Rafael, California. I met a lot of people coming from all over the world because we were there every day. People usually don't do that. It was kind of unusual, um, for us, someone to, to spend that much time and invest, be able to invest that much in their therapy there. And so you'd meet people who come for like a couple weeks or a month at a time um, to do lessons a couple times a year. And we met them um, in the waiting room and my husband and Johannes decided to go for a run together and they just became fast friends of ours. And we, 
loved being with them because they, their spirit felt very much like ours in that they didn't look at what Anna would never do so much as um, they were just open to possibility and trying new things and traveling all the way from Denmark. Um, and they said that nothing else had, had really worked very well for Anna, but a not Danielle method kind of, you know, woke her up and made her, when she was doing it, she would uh, look more vibrant and it helped her to uh, live a full life. And um, so we just became friends and Johannes was in the uh, Anat Benil method training with me. So he would travel all the time, um, even without Anna and Sina. And and we would get to know him and he got to know our kids and loved Carter. Um, and at that time when you make friends, um, there was a lot of dreaming of what your kids would do together as they grew up. And, um, you know, one day we'd always have each other and we found someone who's just like us. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a couple friends like that. And uh, it's hard when one of us loses a child. And then I think, is that going to be the end of the friendship? You know, is that going to be hard? I wouldn't blame anyone. But uh, they stayed so close to us. And I, when, when I saw Johannes after Carter died at the next training, he just huge man, big muscular man, tall, burst into tears and was hugging me and they just wanted to do something. And um, we also wanted to support them in any way that we could. And we insisted that if they wanted, and if it was something we weren't going to push anything on anyone, but we had a very expensive oxygen chamber. It was 10 feet long. We could go in it as a family. And um, we gave it to them. And I gave them my little cold laser that I used for reflex therapy. And um, any books, I'm like, anything you want, you can have it. At that time, I was very <clears throat> closed off. You know, I was just kind of wanting to also purge a little bit and and then support support them and uh they had said that they were always inspired by um by our strength it's a little hard for me to tell the story i suppose because i can't really say i can't speak for them but something inspired them and and they saw that it was possible to dream big and put those blinders on and to put your head down and to put in the work and also rise up from the ashes and not be stuck. And so they just really decided we're going to start our own center and you guys have inspired us and they have the, um, they're the largest neuro movement, which is ABM uh, center in Europe. So they have kids fly in from 
all nearby countries, London and uh, even India, I think, they have kids from all over. And they've worked it out, uh, husband and wife team, to uh, fly in practitioners, all the best ones, uh, many of the best ones, not all, from the United States. Uh, and they have ones in Europe as well now, but they flew in a lot of the ones who were like the founding big name uh, ABM practitioners to work with kids and they would schedule blocks and then they'd schedule the kids coming in and they had bought a place or rented a place for now they bought one but before they were renting a space where they would put up the like apartments it was really nice lovely place where they would with gardens outside that they would keep uh the practitioners could stay comfortably while they stayed in Denmark and and just work and wow. it's it's very successful and um and it's very inspiring that I'm inspired by them that they uh, were able to create that they started a foundation um, I don't think it's an active one but um, in Carter's name a, a little memorial. Um, and it was really heartwarming to see uh, his name and story being shared all the way in, in Denmark with people from all over the world. I just love that though, because, you know, we could be so hyper-focused on our own families and say, well, I'm just doing this for my child, but it's really, I mean, the only word I can think of is inspiring and so moving when somebody says, okay, now I want to give that to the rest of the world, you know, or to Europe, for example, and kids in India who can come there and not have to fly all the way to the United States to, you know, get treatment and, and mm -hmm. to do all of that. It is, we can always take our experience and take it one step further. And when we give back, and it's another thing that I love about Indigenous story work, because it's not just about the story you tell and also what you learn from the stories you hear, but it's about reciprocity. It's how do you pay it forward as well? And how do you share it, not just with your immediate family, but with your community and then beyond your community, your nation. And, and that's exactly what you, you've done. I mean, through, you know, supporting them originally with their dream, dreaming it up with them and giving them the equipment and then them taking it forward and taking it that step further. I mean, that is huge. We don't see that every day in people who've gone through, you know, what you've gone through, which is, which is a lot, but it's incredible to see it being paid forward like that. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's not, not for everybody, but it is, it is therapeutic in its own way to be able to um, still, I, I'm lucky that I get to do the work that I do um, and interview the people that I get to interview and share other people's work with our audience on The Brain Possible. Yeah. Um, and I do still feel like I still have five children. You know, I have, uh, this, is, I, this is still Carter. And it was inspired by him. Yeah. No, it's really such a beautiful, beautiful thing. I want to thank you for sharing your story about Carter and everything that you went through. And I know that by you sharing that, so many other people are going to be able to 
find little gold nuggets of hope and gold nuggets of healing and that they'll go on and inspire other people to be able to to move with the grief and through the grief um, as they experience their own their own worldly experiences that come with being a mother and being a parent and um, and so forth. So I want to thank you for the work that you do on this in, in the world. It is really beautiful, moving, important work. Thank you. It's been an honor to talk to you today. Such an honor to talk to you as well, Emily. Um, so thank you for being here. That is the end of the show. And for everybody who's listening, we're going to have all the resources that Emily has talked about today in the show notes. So don't panic if you didn't miss something or if you didn't hear it, just go to our website. And all, everything will be there so that you can click right through and start doing the work for yourself and for your families as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Perfect. Bye, everyone. Okay. Hi, everyone. And we are back. And I hope you enjoyed that show with Emily Abbott. If you did, please share this episode with your friends, with your family, with your community, so they can learn all about what it means to have a child with a traumatic brain injury and all the things that you can do. Also, visit her website, Who is Carter, and also The Brain Possible so that you can donate so that Emily can continue to do the incredible work that she's doing and she can support her, her team in creating books and bringing podcasts and more stories to the forefront so that we can learn. Um, if you're seeing Sadie here in the video, it's because I'm working from home and we're launching this podcast from home since COVID struck and we had to, um, all of our employees had to really just isolate. And so that involves me having my beautiful children around um, and trying to juggle work and family under one roof all day long. It's quite something. But um, if you haven't listened to the podcast that I did with my daughter, you can dive into that. It's really sweet just to hear about, you know, food as medicine from a young child's perspective and what it means to grow up with a crazy mom that's always talking about food, 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 because it is truly the foundation of our health um, or one of the most important foundations of our health. So going back to Emily, please donate to The Brain Possible and Who is Carter Foundation. And you'll see all of the notes down below in the show notes. And I just want to send out a special thanks to Becky for editing this podcast. She is incredible. And as well to the rest of our team at the Green Mustache Holding Company and at Richer Health for making all of this possible. Stay well, stay safe, eat your fruits and veggies. And we'll see you next week. Bye for now.